Well, we reach today what is one of the darkest moments in the Genesis narrative. Those of you who have been with us since the beginning in this sermon series know that there have been plenty of dark moments uh, in the story so far. And today is certainly one of the darkest, eclipsed maybe only by the fall in Genesis 3 and the flood in Genesis 6. This passage that's before us today has been troublesome for preachers for a long time. I had to laugh when I was reading one of my favorite commentators on Genesis, a man named H.C. Leopold. In his commentary, he gives some technical notes on Genesis 34 and some explanations on the text. And then with every passage, he gives some what he calls homiletical suggestions. That means hints for the preacher. And he said this when it came to Genesis 34, and I quote, We may well wonder if any man who had proper discernment ever drew a text from this chapter. In other words, if you're a smart preacher, skip this one. So buckle up. It should be a good day. Leopold wasn't alone. Some of you might be familiar with the ministry of Alexander McLaren. He was a Scottish Baptist preacher who left us with literally volumes and volumes and volumes of, of sermons that are referenced by pastors all over the world to this day. McLaren, as best I could find, just skipped Genesis 34. He just didn't want to preach on it. So here we are, staring into a passage that many a formidable preacher has decided to pass by, and maybe it's, it's naivety or foolishness, but uh, we're going to tackle it today. One thing that I've come to recognize is that it's often when we do the hard things, when we confront the difficult stories, the challenging history, that we learn the most about ourselves and have the greatest opportunity for growth. I will say that our text today deals with some themes that are hard for many to hear and process, and so it's my prayer today that God will use our time for his glory and for our good from Genesis chapter 34. I'd remind you that this is God's word to us. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock. So he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. 
Only give me the young woman as my wife. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, We can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we will take our sister and go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man, who was the most honored of all his father's family, lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to the men of their city. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will agree to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? So let us agree to their terms, and they will settle among us. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in their houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Uh, Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as we work our way through this uh, horrific and dark account from Israel's history, I want to do two things. First, I want to look at each of the four scenes of this account and, and make sure that we understand what's going on here. And then second, I want to share some warnings that we find in the text that are worth our attention. As I mentioned, there are really four scenes to this tragedy. Scene one is the rape. Verses one and two, Dinah, the daughter that Leah had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land, and when Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and he raped her. Now, if we do the math, it becomes apparent pretty quickly that Dinah was probably 14, maybe 15 years old. She reached the age where it would have been acceptable for her to go see friends in the area. 
There's been a lot written about this. If you were to, to do any research on this passage, you'd see there's a, a lot of opinions shared about whether Dinah should have been spending time with the women of the area or not. I don't, I don't think that really matters. I'm inclined to take what the word says just at face value, that Dinah, the only known daughter with all of these brothers, goes out to see some friends. But as she's away from home, she's noticed by the son of a local ruler. Shechem, son of Hamor, was named after the city that his father ruled over. And we can assume that there's some arrogance, some entitlement at play here. And what happens next is, of course, horrific. Shechem really does four things. Our translation says that he saw her, he took her, and he raped her. There are really four verbs that happen there. He saw her, he took her, he, maybe literally, he lay her, and he raped her. If you read this in the King James, you would see the word defiled rather than raped, kind of trying to soften it up a little bit, but I don't think that it is something that should be softened. The word here conveys the idea of overpowering, humiliating, and doing violence. Some commentators, in an attempt to make the story more palatable, describe Shechem's actions as seducing Dinah, which almost seems like a slap in Dinah's face. There's no reason, based upon the text, to assume that there was any measure of consent involved in this. The four verbs are very forceful. This was rape, not just defilement. But of course, we discover that the story is even more complicated when we get to verse 3. It's complicated because Genesis says his heart, Shechem's heart, was drawn to Dinah. He loved, quote, loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Shechem, the text says, loves Dinah. It doesn't tell us what we're supposed to do with that information, how we're supposed to make sense of that information, other than maybe just recognize how sinful and complicated this situation is. A couple of cultural elements that might help us out here a little bit. We always have to be careful that we recognize that the presence of these events in the Bible doesn't mean that the Bible condones these actions. And we also have to be sensitive to the fact that we're living in a very different time in a very different place. In some ways, we are improving as a society, and in other ways, we are certainly not. But what we see is that the things that Shechem did in our text weren't unheard of in the ancient Near East as a means of manipulation. If a man wanted to marry a woman, but didn't seem to be able to make that happen in the proper way, he could take this approach. This wasn't the first time that this happened, leaving the young woman defiled and culturally ineligible for proper marriage. Because of this act, at no fault of her own, Dinah was less desirable as a wife. And most certainly, her family wouldn't be given a bride price to compensate for giving her in marriage. And so you might see how Shechem and how others in the ancient world would have used a system like this to manipulate the family into allowing him to marry Dinah. She was socially undesirable, and now Shechem is going to make an offer to her family. This happened. Of course, there are other social and cultural challenges that we 
sometimes struggle to understand, for example, the fact that this was a world in which rapists may or may not have been held accountable. We don't have to look very many generations back in our own culture, in our own nation's history, to see similar realities at play. For example, in the state of Louisiana, for far too long, uh, black women were excluded from the rape statute. It was illegal to rape a white woman, but it was perfectly legal to rape a black woman. Up until the 1960s and 70s, there were areas where white men would not be charged if they raped a woman of color. To this day, there remains discrepancy in sentencing. Black rapists are given much longer prison sentences than white rapists. So our culture is still wrestling with these strange and and sad realities. And if we're still not convinced, we could look just a few maybe generations back, a couple generations back in our own part of the country where it was very common for these acts to be covered up, even by the family of the victim, in order to save face, in order to keep peace in the community. These are some cultural realities that might help us, I don't think anything can help us understand what happens in our text, but they might help us at least be able to start processing this to some degree. That brings us to scene two of our text. Scene two is the negotiation. In verse five, uh, it says this, When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the field with his livestock, so he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk with Jacob. It's fascinating that Hamor is the one who initiates the conversation here. Shechem wants Dinah as his wife. And so he tells his father to make it happen. So Hamor goes out and he he meets with Jacob to discuss the situation. And part of what's fascinating is that there's nothing mentioned, there's no sense of remorse or regret on the part of Hamor or Shechem. It's like it's all business. Nor is there a demand for an apology from Jacob. Listen to what Hamor says in verse 8. My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters. Take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it. Trade in it. Acquire property in it. Shechem then speaks up and he says, Make the bride price whatever you want. I'll pay whatever you need. And that's the point at which Jacob's sons, Dinah's brothers, re-enter the picture. And they deceitfully, the text tells us, come to an agreement. That brings us to scene three, the agreement. So what agreement do they arrive at? Verse 14. We can't do such a thing. We can't give her to you as your wife to a man who is not circumcised. This would be a disgrace to us. They say, we will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Now this only makes sense. God had given this sign of circumcision, and if these two people were to become one, it would be fitting that they would all be required to take that sign that God had given to the Israelites. In verse 18, their proposal seemed good to Hamor and to Shechem. So they go to the men of the city, they call a a town meeting, and they sell the idea by appealing to their greed, by listing 
all of the benefits. Women to intermarry with, the financial benefits that the Israelites would bring. They say all of their livestock will be ours. And so the men agree. They do exactly what was agreed to. Every male in the city was circumcised. But we already heard in verse 13, Dinah's brothers were acting deceitfully. Imagine that, Jacob's sons knowing how to deceive. They had no intention of uniting together with the Shechemites. They were going to destroy them. So that brings us to scene four, the revenge. Verse 25, three days later, make note of that language. Remember, we've mentioned that in the past in Genesis. It's one of those breadcrumbs that God leaves for us to remind us of something bigger and better. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, we might add in there her full brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They used the prospects of money and women to ensure that every man in the city was physically compromised, and then they made their move avenging their sister's rape by murdering every man in the city. They took their stuff, they enslaved their women and children, and now it's important to to make the observation here that, that nobody in the story is painted in a positive light. This isn't one of those situations that we'll see later on in the story of Israel where God will deliver a, a village or, or, or a city uh, to the Israelite army in order to protect the Israelites from the influence of these people. This isn't one of those situations. We have no mention of God delivering the Shechemites here. The narrative very much presents this as a negative action on the part of Jacob's sons. And Jacob himself emphasizes this when he says, you have brought trouble on me and made me obnoxious. It literally made me smell bad to the Canaanites. Rather than hold Shechem accountable for what he did, they hold everybody accountable. And the chapter ends on a somber note. After Jacob confronts his sons, they simply ask the question, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? The end. Everybody looks bad. God isn't mentioned at all in this narrative. That's telling. Everybody except for Dinah is in the wrong. Jacob is passive. He literally did nothing and said almost nothing in this account. Shechem is obviously wrong. Hamor is wrong for trying to cover up what his son did. And and Dinah's brothers are wrong for their murderous revenge. Four scenes. Now let's look at several warnings that I think we find in our text, warnings that are relevant for us today. The first one is this, that disobedience always comes with a cost. I think to fully understand this, we have to think back to last Sunday. God had called Jacob, I established this last week, God had called Jacob not to go to Shechem, but to go to Bethel. And Jacob instead went to Shechem and uh, we don't know exactly why, but he buys land, he, he builds buildings, he settles down, he moves in, he homesteads at Shechem instead of the place that God had told him to go. Uh, many have assumed that Bethel was perhaps too isolated 
for Jacob, too far from any of the surrounding people, which was probably the point, the entire reason that God was calling them there. But Jacob does his own thing, and his daughter and his family pay the price for it. In Jacob's case, partial obedience has consequences. It's not like he stayed in Haran. He went most of the way, but partial obedience, of course, we know is just another name for disobedience, right? It always comes with a cost. For many of you, this isn't news. Some of you have lived with the consequences of your disobedience for decades, broken relationships, missed opportunities, baggage that you've been forced to carry with you. Jacob's disobedience affected Dinah, it affected his sons, it affected himself and certainly those around him. And sometimes we never really even know the effect of our disobedience, whose life could have been changed by our generosity, by our friendship, by our invitation. Even those small, seemingly mundane acts of selfish disobedience and sin send ripples out that affect others. Now, we don't live our lives under the weight, under the burden of that guilt. You can second-guess your life choices to death. You can play the what-if game for the rest of your life. It's a maze without an exit that Satan would love for you to be caught up in. We leave those questions, that, that sense of guilt for past disobedience at the cross. But we do take time to consider how my next opportunity That obedience can be important, not just for me, but for those around me. Disobedience, or even partial obedience, always comes with a cost. The second warning that I think we find in our text is this, that we are prone to take what God has meant for blessing and use it for evil. We see this in two places in our text. First, in regard to sexuality. God has designed human sexuality to be a blessing, to be a gift, not only for procreation, but for pleasure, unity, and fulfillment in marriage. But basically, from the very beginning, this has been under attack by the evil one. And this gift that God has given his people has been perverted and manipulated and used for evil, used to ruin lives and cause lifelong pain and trauma. Shechem took what was God's blessing and used it for his own twisted pleasure and gain. And think about how many lives were ruined. There's another way we see this idea illustrated in our passage of us taking what God has meant for good and using it for evil. Think about the means by which Dinah's brothers subdued their enemy. It was through the rite of circumcision. Think about circumcision. This was intended to be a gift through which God would bring his blessing. It was a mark signifying that this person was set apart, that this was one of God's chosen people, set aside for God's purposes, recipients of the promise and the blessing. Circumcision was the way that God's people could be united with the blessing and promise and salvation that was given to Abraham. But instead of a means of blessing, it became a means of death. And this is humanity's story. We take what God has intended for good and we use it for evil. There are so many examples, but I'll I'll throw out just a couple this morning. Think about money and wealth. 
Scripture speaks of money as something that God has entrusted to us to provide for our, our everyday needs, to build his church and his kingdom, to be used for the good and blessing and benefit of our neighbors. But the stories are endless of how we have chosen to use it as a tool for evil, whether the rich oppressing the poor on a macroeconomic scale or our own personal idolatry, worshiping the almighty dollar, the countless ways that money has been used to manipulate and punish and divide within communities and families and marriages. Or think about power, power and authority. God has designed the human system to be made up of different roles and vocations and callings. And scripture tells us that some are entrusted with more authority than others. And God has given those roles in society for the good and the protection of others. Those entrusted with authority, with with power, are called to advocate for and protect the vulnerable, to watch out for those who are struggling. But in typical human fashion, we've abused that system and turned it into one in which some are held down and oppressed while others are elevated. Whether in marriage or in a workplace or on a national level, power is abused to benefit some at the expense of others. You can even see this tendency to misuse what God has given with what it has done to the church. God's intent is that the church is the hope of the world, the light of the world, the place where lost are found, where hurting find rest and hope, where people see and know the love and the mercy of the Savior. And Scripture calls church the body of Christ, the very presence of Jesus in our community among us, but so often church has instead been about too many other things. Politics and power and abuse have all too frequently become what the church is known for. We we are prone to take what God has meant for good and for blessing and to use it instead for evil. And then one final warning that we see in our text that I want to share with you this morning is this. That's that every day is a fight against self-worship. Now, the most obvious place that we see this in our text might be in the actions of Shechem. But I would say we might actually see this more clearly, or at least more relatably for us, in the actions or non-actions of Jacob. Verse 5 tells us that when he heard about what happened, he did nothing. Not sure how that's possible. As a father, I can't imagine that type of reaction. But that's what the scriptures say. He did nothing. You contrast that with the brother's response in verse 7. It says they were shocked and furious. And notice that Jacob remains passive through the entire account, really until after the massacre. And then listen to Jacob's response in verse 30. It says this, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me. By making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land, we are few in number. And if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. I want you to notice the number of times that Jacob refers to himself in that passage. I counted seven references in one verse. Jacob is seemingly more concerned with his own reputation among the people of Canaan 
than he is with what's happened to his daughter. And I think that's confirmed by the way that his sons reply to him in verse 31. Okay, Dad, should we have let them treat our sister like a prostitute? There's an accusation buried in that one verse directed right at Jacob. It's as if the brothers say, you're worried about yourself and your own reputation and your own safety and your own good. Well, they're treating your daughter like a prostitute. I think the case becomes even stronger when we think about the fact that Jacob's response was not grief over the fact that his sons had just deceived and destroyed an entire city. He wasn't grieved over what they did. He was grieved over how it made him look. I think that's something that we have all seen within our own hearts. Remember, this is Jacob. This is the son of the promise, the one who saw God face to face and lived. And if Jacob wrestled with self-worship, if he struggled with worshiping himself first, why would we be any different? And of course, we all know that we're not. Disobedience always comes with a cost. We are prone to take what God has meant for blessing and use it for evil. And every single day is a fight against self-worship. Now you might have noticed that there really isn't any significant resolution to the story. There's no happy ending. The account ends abruptly and then in chapter 35, God calls Jacob to go to Bethel. The place where he was supposed to go in the first place. There's no resolution. It doesn't tie the story together nicely like we would like it to. And I think that's the point. Some of us have found ourselves in these Genesis 34 situations in life. Where it seems like there's no clear way out of the darkness in which we find ourselves. Sometimes we're Dinah, the victim. Sometimes we're Shechem, the cause of the pain and And sometimes we just react poorly and do more damage than what was necessary. We've all been in those moments in life, and you will experience those Genesis 34 valleys again. And I love what follows immediately after this scene in Shechem. In chapter 35, God calls Jacob to go where he was supposed to go, to Bethel. But before they leave, in verse 2 of chapter 35, Jacob leads his entire household in a time of corporate repentance for their sin and idolatry. Chapter 35, starting in verse 2. So Jacob said to his household, to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, purify yourselves, change your clothes, Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Passive, self-worshipping Jacob. At some point, as he's reflecting on what has just happened with his family, and the mess that his family has become comes to the end of himself and God speaks to him and God calls him to go to Bethel and Jacob's response is repentance. They turned from their sin, from their idolatry, from their disobedience, from their unbelief, from their self-worship 
and they buried it all beneath an oak tree at Shechem. And then they went to Bethel and they worshipped the Lord. And that's the good news for us. Whatever dark valley we've been through, whatever sin has had control of our lives, whatever we've been worshipping, whatever acts of disobedience litter the path behind us, God welcomes us in repentance and faith to leave it all here this morning, to bury it beneath the tree upon which Christ has already paid for it all. And whether we're the victim, the perpetrator, the passive observer, the avenger, we're free to live in repentance, to leave it all here today, finding freedom and hope at the tree. Because there was one who died in our place that we might have life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, even when it's difficult. Thank you for this account of how you are moving forward your plan of salvation for the world, your plan to redeem all people from their sin. And we find so much hope in knowing that you use sinful people like us to do it. That we see Jacob's fight against self-worship with his focus on himself in the midst of this horrible situation and we're reminded of ourselves, of our own self-worship. We confess our sin to you today. We confess that we are in need of your mercy this morning. We thank you for the invitation to bury our our sin, our idols, our self-worship beneath the tree and to worship you and you alone. And we ask that you would do that good work in our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.